Hi. Y'all doing good? Sure is a treat to be together, especially if you're a guest, maybe around here for the first time. We're particularly delighted to have you with us, and I hope today is real meaningful and lasting for you. Uh, During the Gallatin County Fair last week, we set up this booth. We called it the Family Rest Stop. And uh, the Family Rest Stop is a booth that offers people who go to the fair a place to get out of the sun, take a break, relax, sort of freshen up kind of a place. We passed out free water, free band-aids, free hand sanitizer, which I am the hugest fan of hand sanitizer. I'd like to bathe in that stuff. Love it. You could even get free lotion. Uh, You could moisturize right over there at the family rest stop. And uh, lots of sunscreen. We gave out a whole bunch of sunscreen. We even had this baby changing station there, complete with complimentary supplies for changing babies' diapers. Uh, It's a diaper and a wipe, those of you who are rookies to that adventure. (laughs) Had these rocking chairs set up there in our little kiosk. They were often used by nursing mothers who were doing the nursing mother thing. And their older children would have gone over and made this kind of bandana craft thing with some journey volunteers who helped them with all that. It was really, really fun. And we kept some stats on what exactly went down at the family rest stop. Approximately 3,000 cups of water were served at the family rest stop. We handed out 1,000 helium balloons, went through six tanks of helium because some people, they just wanted, you know, a little huff of the helium because it's (laughs) so much fun. We went through six entire bottles of sunscreen, big bottles, saw about 30 different Journey Church volunteers serve. We were complimented numerous times, especially by fair staff, who were especially grateful to have us there, something like that, just serving families, no strings attached, and so on. Those rocking chairs weren't just used by nursing moms. Some uh, older adults just swung in and were like, I just got to sit down in the shade and take a load off. Lots of little kids got bandanas. I don't know how many hundreds, I'm certain. We got a lot of positive feedback just from fair attenders. A ton of thank yous, a ton of this is a great idea, a ton of this is really cool, a ton of who in the world are you and why are you doing this kind of thing. We also especially enjoyed shocking people who tried to give us money, like they used hand sanitizer and then were like, here, here's some money. Like, no, keep it. And they're like, what? I got to pay. No, just keep it. No strings attached. And then of those 30 servers who uh, volunteered, At the family rest stop, a whole bunch of them were first-time servers. They'd never served at a Journey Church anything before, so way to go, those of you who took advantage of that. And we hear all that, and we go, oh, that's cool. And I want you to know that that's who we are as a church community. It's who we are. And we did that, and we do things like that, because we believe to the core of our beings that people matter to God, see. People matter to God, and people are loved by God, And very often, people just need someone to show God's love to them in a skin-on, tangible kind of way. It's really easy for us to sit in this room and extol the virtues of all of God's love, right? We talk about it all the time in here. But for a whole bunch of people out there who aren't in here, talk is just real cheap. And they need somebody to put some skin on God's love for them. They need to see it, feel it, touch it. God's unconditional, no-strings-attached kind of love Put into action. That's what the family rest stop is all about. Stuff like that is all about for us as a community. God's love expressed in a very tangible way. No strings attached. And get this. Some people I know go like, oh, we know why you you did that. You set that up so that people would stop in and then you'd like talk to them about journey and get them to come to church. It's not like that at all. It's not like a fishing pond where we set the hook and get into a seat in church. It's not like that at all. 
no strings attached, on their terms. Unconditional love, unconditional service. And that has a right feeling, doesn't it? And it has a right feeling because it squares with the ethic that God himself demonstrates over and over and over again in the sacred text. That people matter. People are the highest prize in God's created order. God wove, as a matter of fact, his very image into us, into human beings, into people at creation. He didn't sow his image into mountains or into rocks or into elk or into dogs. He sowed his image into us, see. And the God who sowed his image into us and the God for whom people are the highest priority is in the business of pursuing people and wooing their hearts to him. God is so into people, as a matter of fact, that he offered his one and only son, Jesus Christ, as the sacrificial bridge by which people could come into relationship with him. People matter so deeply to God. People matter so deeply, therefore, to us as a community. And some of you are sitting there right now and you're going like, tell me something I don't already know, Brian. That's no kind of revolutionary truth. I mean, really. There's nothing new about saying that people matter to God, therefore people matter to us. Uh, we, we get it. But how often do we know that that's true, that people matter to God and therefore people are to matter to us? How many times, how often do we put other things, other loyalties, other priorities ahead of, in front of, a sustained emphasis on people? How many times are we more loyal to systems than we are to people? Those of you who work in the marketplace, think about your world for a moment. How often in the marketplace can a people emphasis be superseded by a profit emphasis or otherwise? A loyalty to the bottom line over the needs and best interests of staff and employees and even customers for that matter. Think about your family world. In families, a people emphasis can be superseded in a moment by a what's comfortable, what's simple, what's easiest kind of emphasis. Just think about your marriage and your family and your kids and your extended family and the ton of moving parts and pieces within all of that. A ton of complexity, isn't there? And within all of that complexity, a whole bunch of the time, it's just far easier to ignore the needs of the people involved and trend everything toward serving the system all for the sake of comfort and simplicity and ease, right? And in the church, holy cow, in the church in just a second, if we take our eye off the ball, a people emphasis can be superseded by an emphasis just on religious systems. Here's what you say, here's what you don't say, here's what you do, here's what you don't do, here's how it works, here's how it doesn't work. Just get in line and be quiet. A people emphasis superseded by an emphasis on religious systems. And while we might be prone to imagine that religious systems are an invention of more recent days, the truth is that they've been around for as long as religion itself has been around. That religion has been busy placing its system ahead of people for just as long. Jesus Christ himself encountered this incredible tension between his own people-centric approach to ministry and life and the Jews' very religious systems approach. If you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12. Verse 38 to 44, we're going to camp out. Mark chapter 12, if you don't have a text, you can follow along in the side screens. Here's what the Bible says, Mark 12, starting in verse 38. Jesus also taught, beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces, and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. 
yet they shamelessly treat with cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. You got your pennies? Pull them out. Get your pennies out. You got them? No throwing them, by the way. Just hold on to your pennies. Many rich people put in large amounts, unlike these pennies. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all of the others making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything, everything that she had to live on. Now, in most approaches to this narrative, this text, we see people go on to contrast the religious hypocrisy of the scribes, uh, that's the teachers of religious law Jesus refers to, and then the genuine piety of this woman who gives her all. But I want us today to take a slightly different tack. I want us instead to look at this narrative through the lens of a people-centric view of ministry versus a religious system's view of ministry. And it starts out with Jesus having some harsh words for the scribes, the teachers of religious law. Scribes, just in case you don't know, they're the elite scholars and teachers of the law in Jesus' day. They were typically lawyers. They served as the custodians of the Jewish tradition. They're the keepers of the religious system in Jesus' day. No one was more steeped in the religious system than the scribes were. They were the guardians of the Jewish temple state. And Jesus says to the people, look out, look out, for the scribes. Look out for their ways. Here it is. Beware of these teachers of religious law. They like to parade around in flowing robes, receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces, and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets, he says. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Now, Jesus certainly recognized the, the scribes' official duty as the authorized teachers of Judaism, but he utterly denounces their conduct. He says, guys, you are all wet. They love some stuff, and Jesus calls attention to what they love. They love wearing long clothing. They love dressing up in these priestly royal robes and parading around an ostentatious display, and I was reading this text, interacting with it this week, and I thought to myself, Oh, shoot, I think I've been like a scribe before. I used to work at a church in Florida, and I used to have to wear robes in the weekend services. And I would be up on the platform in this long flowing, sometimes they were black and sometimes they were white, and they had this uh, colored stole, and I looked like the biggest geek you've ever seen in my robe. The first time I ever had to put one of those things on was my first weekend at this church, and I was going to be on the platform to do something very important like the announcements or something like that. And so I showed up at 7 o'clock at our church. We were a television church, and so we had a television staff production meeting at 7 so we could talk about when the commercial breaks were, so we knew when to stop church and when to do this. It was really weird, planning a church service around commercials. Like, what in the world? How does that work? So I showed up at this meeting at 7 o'clock with the pastoral staff who were going to be on the platform and the TV staff, and I had on a white button-up dress shirt, medium starch, with a tie. And I plopped down next to the senior pastor, and uh, he called me son. I'm not sure why, but he liked to call me son. And I plopped down, and he said, uh, son, where's your suit coat? I said, uh, well, uh, this is Florida, and it's about 1,000 degrees outside, and, and I'm going to put a robe on, right? And so why would I put a suit coat on? Oh, son, he said, at this church, 
we wear suit coats under our robe. Now, I'm not a rebel. I'm just not. Like, typically, I would have just gone, okay. But I, I just had to ask the question. I was like, well, who, who cares whether we have a suit coat on? Who sees it? Son, the Lord sees, he said. The Lord sees. <laughs> who knew? So that week, I got to wear just my shirt sleeves. But from then on, I wore a suit coat because apparently the Lord sees through the robe, long, flowing, ostentatious robe. And the scribes loved that kind of stuff. I'm glad I hated it. But the scribes, they loved it. They loved receiving salutations in the marketplaces in any public setting for that matter. The scribes loved being called rabbi. They loved being called teacher. In modern context, it would be a pastor loving being called reverend. I hate that. Do not call me that. My name is Brian. But the scribes, they loved it. They demanded and they desired titles. They almost lived them. They also loved what they called the chief seats in the synagogues. I said chief, not cheap. Chief is like up there. Chief is like up here, right? They're the benches that were at the front of the synagogue facing outward to the congregation that were, that were reserved for officials and important dignitaries and people conducting the worship services. Lots of you have been around the church long enough to remember these in churches, right? These giant, we had them at our church in Florida where I wore robes. These giant, uh, I called them thrones because they were actually larger than thrones and we would sit in them and I'd always sit next to the pastor. I called him doctor because he was a doctor and I would sit next to him and I would once in a while cross my legs and he would tap my knee, feet flat on the floor. Oh, sorry, I guess the Lord sees that too, doesn't he? No legs crossed on the stage. I honestly think one of the best moves that the contemporary church has made in the last 25 years is to get rid of the chief seats. I mean, seriously. Imagine me sitting up here during the whole service just watching everything that you're doing. Hey, she's passing a note, and hey, she's sending a text, and hey, that guy's sleeping. You don't want that. Get rid of those. But the scribes, they loved them. And they also loved the head table at feasts. They would just make their way right to the head table because they were scribes after all. And they didn't have chairs in those days, but there would have been a head table with these sort of cushions laid out behind it that they would have sort of reclined on, enjoying looking out over the whole crowd, making sure everyone noticed them. No matter where it was, wherever the scribes went, at every stage of social life, they wanted to be endowed with special privilege and status. And privilege and status, just so you know, they were the commodities of social power in Mediterranean honor culture. That's how you got ahead in Jesus' day. But it was an incredible clash of cultures with Jesus and his teaching and who he was. It didn't get any more dramatic of a clash of cultures than Jesus and the scribes. Jesus is propagating, he's busy propagating this mentality of servant and least and last. And then the scribes, they're clawing to be served. They're trying to be the most. They're trying to be first in every line, in every way that you can imagine. Now, yes, the scribes certainly occupied a very important religious office in Jesus' day. They were the guardians of the Jewish religious system. Their role was indeed important. But let me ask you a question. Does the uniform a person wears, does the title that a person bears, does the office that a person holds make a person important? No, absolutely not. But the scribes, they thought that that's how it worked. They thought that their title and their office and their uniform made them matter, made them someone, made them important. 
But if a person is, quote, important only because of the uniform they wear, the title that they carry, the office they hold, then the, quote, importance is just fake. It's artificial. It doesn't really matter because it's our character. It's what's inside of here that makes us valuable, see. And as much as we wish it were not the case, nobody can give us character. Nobody waves a wand over us and says, you got character. Rather, character is something that we must develop minute by minute, day by day, year after year, oftentimes out of sight of anyone else except God in the darkest recesses of our being as we walk with him. And as we invite him to shape and mold and change our character into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus says, these scribes have got all the external stuff going on. They got all the external trappings going on. But their character does not even come close to matching up with their lifestyle. Let me show you, he says. Beware of these teachers of religious law. They like to parade around in flowing robes, receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces, and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. And then Jesus utters this tiny three-letter word, yet. They got all of that, yet, Jesus says. It all turns right here, doesn't it? Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Jesus is calling the scribes to account. He's calling them hypocrites because he says, while you love all these trappings, all the stuff of your high religious office, while you parade the perks of your position about, you are disingenuous and rotten to the core. Jesus says, you are cheating widows, the very least of these, out of their property, and then you're going on to pray long, ostentatious, religious-sounding prayers in order to keep up this public facade of piety. It ought not be, Jesus says. And there is some argument that Mark, when he penned his gospel, that he very strategically, I can talk, strategically places those words, cheat and prayer, with each other. The argument goes something like this. The main site that those scribes would have prayed those long, ostentatious, religious-sounding, holier-than-thou prayers was in the temple. That's where they conducted those prayers, in the temple. That's where they did that. These prayers that Jesus sort of assaults and rips on that were prayed in the temple. And this is an aside. It's interesting, isn't it, to hear Jesus rip on praying, isn't it? Usually we think of Jesus as being like the number one fan of prayer. Like, yeah, Jesus loves prayer. But here he is ripping on prayer. What's the deal? Well, I'm here to tell you that Jesus is the number one fan of prayer. But there's a certain kind of prayer that seems to dampen his enthusiasm for the deal. Here's what it is. It's the prayers that are prayed more for the people listening than prayers that are prayed to God. Jesus is not a fan of sermon prayers or lecture prayers. He says, "Uh uh-uh, I don't like those prayers. Those are not the right kind of prayer. Prayer is about communing, communicating with God. Have you ever prayed that sort of sermon lecture prayer that was more directed at the people who were listening than it was to God? I know I have. Certainly I have. And that's what the scribes did every time they prayed. They were praying long lecture, long sermon prayers rather than prayers that were just honest and heartfelt, lifted to God himself. They were directed to the people who were around. They were actually trying to 
attract attention to themselves by praying these long prayers. They somehow thought that the length of their prayers mattered to God, that the length of their prayers made them more righteous than the rest of the Jews, than anyone listening. But get this, it's not about the length of your prayers that makes a difference. It is not about the length of your prayers. After all, Jesus and his disciples, they actually got in trouble, if you will, for not spending more time praying. In Luke chapter five, you could look it up sometime, some critics asked Jesus, why in the world they're always eating and drinking? Why are you always partying and not spending more time praying? Jesus and his disciples criticized for not praying more. It's not about the length of your prayers. It's about an attitude of prayer, an attitude of humble, unpretentious, unconditional trust that God is actually going to do something about the stuff that you're praying about, that he's actually going to render change, whether it be to someone's heart or your heart or some circumstance or some situation, that he's actually going to involve himself. And the main side, back to the argument, the main side of these long, holier-than-thou lecture sermon prayers that the scribes were praying was the temple. And the temple, the argument goes, and the costs associated with building the temple and running the temple, and then this giant staff that has to oversee the temple actually devours the resources of the community in such a way that the ministry of the temple ceased to be about people. Systems over people, see. Instead, the temple system became an end all unto itself. It's just about a building. It's just about a religious system. It ceased to be about people. And Jesus, as this argument goes, as this case goes, was absolutely fiercely opposed to any kind of exploitation that would place a religious system above the needs of people. And Jesus was actually, this argument alleges, was actually calling for a new site for prayer to take place. You remember in the Gospels, Jesus says, you have taken my house of prayer and you have turned it into a den of thieves. What was intended to be about connecting people with my Father, God in heaven, has just become a religious system. It's all about the money. It's not about the people. It's not about connecting people with God. It's about buildings and systems. And so Jesus was calling for an entirely new site for prayer to take place, not the temple, because it had become so corrupt, so broken, so spiritually bankrupt. And then this argument weaves on to say that Jesus then illustrates the tragedy of a religious system over people with the illustration of the widow's might, the widow who gave her last two coins. Do you have your pennies? Jesus also taught, beware of these teachers of religious law. They like to parade around in flowing robes, receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces, and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. And then it's almost like you could insert, according to this argument, the words, now let me illustrate this tragedy for you. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Got your pennies? And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth, 
This poor widow is given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, is given everything that she had to live on. And get that scene in your mind. Let me paint it for you. It's a mild, cool morning in Jerusalem. The sun, it's not quite all the way risen to full strength. People, though, are already lined up all the way down the dusty road that leads to the holy temple. And there's smoke that's lingering in the air because animals have already been offered and burned as sacrifices on the altar. And in that slow-moving line that's pointed toward the temple, there are rich and poor, young and old, all of them carrying the offerings that are be, to be presented at the temple that day. That line leads to this small square room. It was lined around the outside edges with 13 metal trumpet-shaped chests into which people would throw their offerings. Now, when they went into the room, they actually had to declare to the priest who was in charge of that room the amount of their gift. Imagine that, the amount of their gift and the purpose for which it was intended. Lots of other people would have heard that, see. And as you can imagine, the coins were making a constant clanging noise as they were cast into the receptacles. More wealthy citizens would pass by and they would throw their heavier, more expensive, more valuable coins and it made a loud clanging noise. The priest who was in charge would have heard that and he would have, I'm sure, cast favored glances toward the folks making those kinds of gifts. Way to go. Good job. Ooh, that was a lot. Oh, good job. Way to go. Very impressed with the generosity of those who cast an abundance of big, heavy, weighty coins into the boxes. And yet in that kind of culture, it's not any kind of surprise that no one pays particular attention when this frail little woman enters the room. And she steps through the door and she announces her gift as small as it could possibly be. And she stops at the collection terminal and she deposits these very insignificant coins making just a faint click, a click that would have been drowned out by the heavy clanking of the more substantial gifts by the wealthy worshipers. And those two small coins that the widow offered, they were called leptons. They were the smallest copper coin in circulation, smaller than our dime in size. The word lepton actually means peeled or stripped. They were so very thin, almost as if they had been peeled back, like kind of a layer of skin, fragile, brittle, easily broken. They were worth one quarter of one cent, those two coins together. In our dollar today, one quarter of one cent. And I know exactly what's happening right now. A whole bunch of you are in this moment starting to squirm in your seats because you're in this moment anticipating that I'm going to now launch into a barn-burning closing about how the widow gave everything she had to her church and you should too. You can relax, we're not going there. We're not going there. And we're not going there today because I want to pose a different hypothesis to you. And it's this question. What if Jesus didn't mean this lesson, this narrative, to be a lesson on how much we should give or on how much we should have left after we give, which, by the way, if we follow the lesson out, we're supposed to give it all now, right? Just give it all now. Don't have anything left. But what if Jesus didn't mean it as a lesson about how much we have left or how much we give? But what if instead Jesus actually meant this lesson, these words, to be the official condemnation of a religious system that exalts itself and places itself above the needs of the people whom it was originally intended to serve? 
What if Jesus intended this narrative, this lesson, to be a lament of a value system that motivates a woman who has absolutely nothing to her name to give her last quarter cent, her last two coins to further its cause, if you will. Could I ask you, what would you give your last two pennies to? What kind of a movement would you give your last two pennies to? What kind of a cause would you give your last two pennies to? What if Jesus meant his words in Mark 12 to be the official condemnation of a scribal class of leaders who somehow, someway managed to teach this woman that their religious system trumped her need to eat and survive and thrive? Give it all to us and do it now, please. Honestly, we have to ask the question, don't we? What in the world was this woman investing in? What was she investing in? The only money that she had to her name, and her fa- she didn't have any family. She was all alone in this world. What was she investing the only money that she had to her name into? And now that she gave everything that she had, what will become of her? What's her plight? Would the temple hierarchy extend a helping hand to her? I think we have to ask the question, what happens to all that money, including her quarter cent she throws in? Think about this. Would some of the money that that widow threw into the offering that day, would some of that money be used to bribe Judas to betray his master, Jesus Christ, to buy Judas off so that the scribes could get a foot in the door? You remember the scribes were some of the most involved religious leaders in Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion, ultimately. The temple, it sported ostentatious wealth. It was almost sickening. It makes the crystal cathedral look like nothing, frankly. Ostentatious displays of wealth in God's house, in the temple. Would the officials of the temple just waste her gift? Would they just pilfer it for a cause, for advancing a cause that was so far away from what it was originally intended to be about? Just a religious system over God's priority of people? What would you give your last two cents to? What kind of a movement? What kind of an endeavor? What kind of a cause would you give your last two cents to? I got an email this week from a friend of mine who's moving from Bozeman to the East Coast. Uh, He seems to think that because he's moving to the East Coast that he can't continue to, he and his wife can't continue to be a part of the Journey Church family. I said, well, you, you got all weekend to travel 2,000 miles and hang out with us and then go on back. Uh, he disagrees. I questioned his commitment to the Lord. I... <laughs> Here's what his email said. It started with a, a kind introduction. It said, hops. That's what he calls me. Are you okay with your pastor being referred to as the main ingredient of beer, one of the main ingredients of beer? Is that, is that, right? I, I have no. I shrugged my shoulders. Hops. I'm winding down my last day of work and I'm off to our new adventure and it's cool what this couple is about. I wanted to drop you a quick note to let you know how much, watch this, I appreciate the change that God has used journey, that's all of us, to institute in my life and my marriage. He says, my wife and I will be forever grateful. He goes on to say, I know you don't need any confirmation from me, But what you are leading and what you are a part of is the greatest work that can be undertaken. And my wife and I are just two of many fruitful examples. That's us. That's who we are. People matter. 
not a religious system. And people matter so much, this couple in particular, that a few years ago, some people got up next to he and his wife and poured in and mentored and discipled and challenged and shepherded because people matter, not a religious system. And a few years later, when they have to leave us, they as a couple look together on their time with us and they say, holy cow, that mattered. That absolutely mattered. We're changed, we're different because of what God did through this community called Journey Church. People matter to God. It's not about a religious structure or a religious system. It's not about an ostentatious religious display that's devoid of God's care for people and the life change that only he can render. And that email I got is just one of many. I could tell you story after story after story of how God is using all of us, this community called Journey Church, to minister to the deepest and most broken needs of people. It's because God's ethic of people first is our ethic as a church community. And here's what that translates into. When you think about what kind of a movement, what kind of a cause would you give your last two cents to, your generosity and your financial investment in this community, I'm here to tell you that it's not even close to a questionable investment. When that widow dropped those two coins into that collection receptacle, she was making, frankly, a questionable investment. What would it actually go for? Your investment in a community like this is not even close to questionable. It's not even close to what happens with all of that money. It's being translated right here into life change over and over and over and over and over again. Young, old, rich, poor, moms, dads, sons, daughters, it doesn't matter. Life change over and over and over again. Your investment in your church called Journey is a gift to the very cause that God himself invested all of himself into, which is the pursuit of people, because people matter. What kind of a movement would you give your last two cents to? And then we have to ask ourselves the question, how invested are we in God's pursuit of people? We can all say that we value it, but when we look at our checkbook, does our checkbook demonstrate that we value it? Or are we just giving lip service? Yes, people matter. And an interesting thing happens. Right after this exchange, right after this illustration, right after the story of the woman's coins, Jesus got up and he left the temple. And many scholars consider that action to be very symbolic in its own right. Jesus getting up from the temple, leaving the temple, turning his back on the temple, turning his back on a religious system that was frankly about to crumble and disintegrate, the very next text, Mark 13, 1 and 2, here's what the Bible says. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. And Jesus replied, Yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. So Jesus just gets done with this diatribe against this religious system and he gets up and leaves and one of the disciples sort of puts his foot in his mouth and says, man, look at this building. Isn't it astounding? And Jesus probably caught him off guard. Like, You've got to be kidding me. Are you serious? Yeah, he says, sure. These are great buildings. But that's not what matters. 
That's not what matters. They will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. And this has application to us as a church community. Lots of you have been wondering what in the world's going on with our campus development, breaking ground, and all of that stuff. I want you to know that I am as impatient as anyone about this process. I drive John Oakland, our executive pastor, crazy almost every single day. I'm almost beating a path to his door. What is going on? Why does it take that long to do that? I could do it in five minutes, I'm sure. I don't know what I'm talking about. He just looks at me and tells me to shut up, Brian. Not really. Why can't that go faster than that? Why can't that? What's going on? I want you to know that at this moment, we're actually redrawing plans. We have about two and a half building plans in the mix at the moment. We've just recently introduced some very new and innovative construction options into the dialogue. We're continuing day by day, moment by moment, primarily sitting right in the middle of John Oakland's desk to count the cost of construction. And this passage speaks to us as we work on all of that. And you're like, what in the world? Is it going to build it? It's all going to come crashing down? We hope not. It has application because the temple building became an end all unto itself, didn't it? It was an end all unto itself. The Jews somehow got twisted up to believe that the, that the temple was just about a building, a beautiful dwelling place for God. They lost sight of the fact quickly that it was supposed to be a facility that served to connect people to God, not an end unto itself, not a religious system, not just about buildings. And so as this process for us, as this community goes forward ever so slowly, It's only because we are adamant that this construction process and this building a building and having land and all that stuff never become an end unto itself. It's not about building buildings. Buildings are just tools to help people connect with God. We're ensuring every moment of every day as we count this cost that we can maintain our commitment to serving and reaching people in the midst of occupying a building and all of that. And so I invite and I challenge you to just keep up your prayers on that front. There's a lot swirling around. A lot of it's pretty murky at this moment. Nobody's keeping you in the dark, I promise. We're just as much in the dark as you are. And as soon as we know more, you will know, I promise. Just pray on that front. Is it about people? Or is it about just a religious system? What's it gonna be? Why don't you take your pennies and put them in your pocket and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and just go to prayer if you would. Just tell God what you're thinking about. You can do that now. Could I just ask you to stay in a posture of prayer in these next moments? Let me talk to you who follow Jesus Christ already. Could I ask you, is there anything in your life, anything in your world that you're putting some system ahead of people? Is it in your workplace? Is it in your family? Maybe you're a servant in the church and you've set up your own little religious system that's trumping God's priority of people. 
that's the case, I just invite you to transact whatever business you got to do with God around that. How might God in this time be prompting your heart to move more toward his priority on people over systems? Maybe for you, there's even some sin issues related to all of that. If there is, I just invite you to clean that up with the Lord. Air it out, confess it, turn from it. Ask God to help you never to go there again. Ask him to help you take action steps so that people matter most to you, not systems, not structures. And then you who follow Jesus Christ, could I also press in and ask you the question, are you giving and are you investing in God's pursuit of people that shows your priority? Or are you just giving lip service to it? today, God, be nudging your heart toward a deeper generosity to God's work, God's work of changing lives right through your church. And maybe you're a person who's never even thought about giving before, but the Lord's speaking to you on that. Just take him up. Just try it. Follow God's heart there. Obey him. Or maybe you've been very generous for a very long time, and the Lord's saying, need to increase my giving to God's work, his pursuit of people. Listen into him on that. And then maybe there's those of you who are here today who aren't yet followers of Jesus Christ. Maybe for a long time you've thought, you've understood that the church was just about a religious system, that God was just a religious system that didn't really matter about people. You just saw it as some organization. Maybe the Lord's been speaking to you otherwise today. Maybe you've come to understand how much Jesus loves you. The fact that he's been pursuing you since before the beginning of time. And that he's offering you himself as the way to a relationship with God. Your ability to experience the gospel of Jesus Christ starts by you crossing the line of faith, stepping into a relationship with him. And you can do that right here, right now, by praying along with me a prayer that goes something like this. God, I know how much you love me, and I am so grateful. Thank you so much for sending your one and only son, Jesus, to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know that I broke relationship with you because of my sin. I've done stuff that I shouldn't have, God, that's contrary to who you are. And I know, God, that you're perfect and you're holy and that my sin has separated us. But I believe, God, that because of your love, Jesus died for my sin. And I ask you to, by his death and resurrection, please forgive me. Please send Jesus to live inside of me. God, become my friend right here, right now. Change me and clean me up and set me on a course, God, of investing in your work, in people, all of my days, Father. And your choice to ask Jesus to be your savior just then that's the biggest decision of your whole life nothing matters more as a matter of fact it's such a big deal that around here we invite people to tell us when they made that decision and I'm going to ask you to do that with me with every head bowed and every eyes eye closed nobody's looking around this room but me nobody's going to embarrass you if you prayed with me just then would you be so bold as to slip your hand up make eye contact with me and just say yes way to go you right there I stepped into a relationship with Jesus Christ right here today and 
right there. Both of you are there. And you, sir, right back there. Fantastic. God's changing all of you right here, right now. Are there any others? I don't want to miss anybody. God, for us as a community called Journey Church, would you please never let it be about a religious system? we carry your ethic of people with us for all of our days, God. May we serve and may we give and may we love with your heart, with your character, reflecting your very nature to people around us, God. And I pray that we would come back to this question. Are we like the scribes? And we come back to it often that we would assess ourselves and our lives and our ministries, personal and corporate, God. And if there's anything scribe-like, God, in any of our lives, would you convict us of it, please? Root it out. It is so far from your nature. It is so far from who you are. Convict our hearts, God, when we're out of line. Our goal is to be like you, show you to the world around us, Father. May we do that magnificently because you are the magnificent God of the universe, the one who loves us, the one who sent your son to save us. And we are so grateful. Thank you for making us your children, God. We love you and we worship you and we are all yours. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the church said,